Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCoursStory.com. If you've been listening to the show, enjoying the show, and haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, uh, what are you waiting for? Head on over there and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. This week's episode is brought to you by LouCBD, L-O-U-C-B-D dot com. Have you uh, been hearing about CBD, interested in trying CBD, maybe to relieve anxiety, stress, help with pain, inflammation? Well, check out LouCBD. Over at Lou CBD, all their products are made from organically grown hemp. Uh, they contain zero solvents, pesticides, heavy metals. It's all third-party tested, 0% THC. Uh, and one of the owners, me, is a return Peace Corps volunteer. To save 15% off your first order, just use the offer code Peace Corps at checkout. Use the offer code Peace Corps at checkout for 15% off. Now, this week's episode, I have something a little bit different for you guys, so let's just dive right in, and I'll explain it in a second. This is... This is... This is... This is my... My Peace Corps... Peace Corps... My Peace Corps... My Peace Corps... Story... 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 And I'm back. On this week's episode, I have an interview that was not done by me. Uh, This is an interview that is part of the John F. Kennedy Library. Uh, Now, over at jfklibrary.org, they have an archive of oral history interviews from returned Peace Corps volunteers. Now, the library has done a ton of them, uh, but very few of them are actually digitized and available online. Now, some of these interviews are very very long, uh, well over an hour. Sometimes I've seen few over over two hours long, uh, but they are excellent interviews, and they are available uh, for for anybody to go listen to and actually download. Uh, they are in the public domain. When I thought of using some of these interviews, uh, my first thought was to go through, listen to the interviews, and cut them down. Uh, make them a little bit cleaner uh, in the flow of the interview, maybe editorialize and I would play a clip or maybe introduce a clip. And then after that clip, you know, talk about it a little bit. And I had this grand idea and actually I spent more than five hours, four or five hours while I was on a a plane uh, from one coast to the other in the United States, working on and editing uh, this file, which you're about to hear. And at the very, very end, I just, I gave up. I did not like my edit. The way that these are recorded, it was just a little too difficult for me to go in 
and clip out uh, long enough segments to make it worth my time. Uh, but this this interview is is excellent, and it comes from uh, John W. Bing, who served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Afghanistan from 1964 to 1967 as an English teacher in Afghanistan in the 60s. Afterwards, he worked on the Peace Corps staff in Afghanistan and then at Peace Corps headquarters in Washington, D.C. as a regional training officer uh, for the Middle East. And he was part of the third group in Afghanistan. And during his first year of service, he taught English at the University of Kabul. And in the second year, he taught English at an agricultural middle school in, uh, I believe it's Baghan. I'm probably butchering that uh, pronunciation. Uh, but in both places, he used the uh, oral uh, method of instruction plus textbooks developed by Columbia University specifically for Afghanistan. And much of this interview is focused on Bing's views on the activities to promote cross-cultural understanding. Uh, and this is important because Bing was the uh, co-author of the first draft of Peace Corps' cross-cultural training manual. And then he's been working in the field uh, for international education and cross-cultural training uh, pretty much ever since uh, he ended his service in 1967. This is just an amazing interview. It was originally recorded on November 5th, 2018 by Evelyn uh, Gansglas. That's the, the woman that you hear uh, in the recording. But if you if you like this, if you like me going in, uh, listening to these uh, interviews and just plopping them down in their entirety, let me know. If you think I should actually go back in and, and edit them and cut them down and editorialize them, let me know. I'm trying to play around with a few different things of bringing in stories that are a little bit harder to get from you know these countries like Afghanistan that we only served in for a very short period as Peace Corps volunteers. And uh, I've got some ideas from some more monologue style of me exploring topics uh, based on recommendations from you guys as well. So without further ado, here is John Bing, who served in Afghanistan from 1964 to 1967. John, why did you join the Peace Corps? It was a turbulent time, uh, and uh, I had just left graduate school. My uh, father was an immigrant to the country, and I had the international bug. Uh, I did not have the international bug strongly enough to go to Vietnam. Um, And so I found my, I had applied to the Peace Corps uh, for French Africa, and naturally, they sent me to Afghanistan, um, where not a lot of French was spoken, which I hoped to uh, to learn. Uh, and instead, I learned the lingua franca of Afghanistan, which is Dari, mm-hmm. uh, much better than I ever learned French. <laughs> so... It was, in a way, uh, a continuation of of my international and cross-cultural interest that started off uh, by observing my parents. Uh, my father coming from Germany 
and being very much the German temperament and culture, the uh, leader of the family, and my mother, who was uh, Irish-English uh, descent, who'd been over here for a long time, her family, and uh, she was expected to be the housefrau, so I noticed initially some strong cross-cultural differences, and my role in the family as the oldest was to heal up all those cross-cultural differences. So very early I got uh, involved in, in that field. Uh, my uh, mother's idea of child-rearing was to say that everything that the child does is wonderful and could do no wrong. And my father's was the opposite, that this guy is a dumkopf and couldn't do anything right. So I saw these differences from a very early time. And the Peace Corps was a way of testing myself in international waters. Hmm. And Vietnam was still going on at that point? Yes. Vietnam was still going on at that point. Uh, so um, when I got there... When you got to Afghanistan? Afghanistan, yeah. Um, I immediately learned uh, a strong cultural difference when I went up to buy some oranges and decided to try out my dotty. It was called Farsi then. Uh, it's a variation of Iranian mm -hmm. Persian. And uh, so I went up and I, I knew that you negotiated. And so I started to negotiate and uh, I said, uh, how much is this orange? And he said, uh, oh, it's one Afghani. And I said, well, if I buy two, how much will it be two Afghani? And I said, well, I think I'll take all ten. And he said, I'm not selling any to you. And the reason was because he was a khalifar. He was, a, 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 even though he was only a street seller of fruit, he was an older man with great dignity. And I had insulted him by over-negotiating the product. Oh. <laughs> So I learned very early on uh, about that cultural differences were more subtle than I had learned. Um, speaking of the training, learning about Afghanistan, there were two important things uh, that, that were an upshot of the training. One was that, uh, uh, that I met a lifelong uh, friend, um, first there, one of the language teachers, uh, who became Dr. Isan Entazar, and whose funeral I went to two months ago in Lodi, California. So we know each, knew each other much of our lives mm -hmm. and had great uh, uh, affinity, friendship, and affection for each other. The other was that Kennedy was assassinated during that time, and so it was it was really quite, uh, in a way, a difficult period. Uh, so I found myself in Afghanistan uh, after the training and began my work as an English teacher. Okay. We're going to back up a little bit. I also want to go back and just talk about the experience of being in, in Afghanistan when the president was, was killed. Um, 
So you applied, where did you grow up? All over the country, the eastern part of the country, uh, New York City, Connecticut, Alabama, Missouri, Michigan. And and you were you said you had gotten your master's degree when you applied. I, when I applied, I applied from uh, graduate school, which I actually left without completing. And later, when I returned, I got my doctorate from University of Massachusetts in uh, international education. And what had what had you been studying before? Uh, I was thinking about going into uh, journalism, uh, and uh, it just. It just, uh, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So I decided to give myself a couple of years and, you know, see what I was like two or three years from then. And where were you in school? Well, I went, to, did my undergraduate work at Harvard in English Lit and uh, then uh, went to the University of Michigan. The home of Peace Corps. Pardon? The home of, of the Peace, Peace Corps. Corps. That's right. Yes. Or at least that's where the idea was brooded where, about. That's where it was discussed at yeah. first. So how did you know about Peace Corps? Uh, I was very much devoted follower of, of Kennedy. And uh, one, uh, and I knew of the fact that he'd taken up the Peace Corps as one of his uh, signature um signature approaches to foreign international work. Okay, so you applied and you were clearly accepted. Yes, and in a different part of the world. Were you a different part? Were you um, happy about being accepted to Afghanistan or did you go I, back and complain about that? No, 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 no. I, I think I knew enough about the federal government to know that Complaining wouldn't get you very far. Well, so. some people complained and shifted. Well, actually. really, yes. then I didn't know as much <laughs> as I thought I did. In any event, uh, I quickly I was quickly brought to a training program at uh, at the Experiment in National Living in Brattleboro. Um, that's where the in country training was. That's right. At that time, all of the training was in country. It was in the U.S. I should say, and. Uh, they it was quite an excellent program and i got to know all the afghan instructors very well and i liked them one incident from that period i remember well is that uh i was invited to play a game of chess with an afghan and there were two surprising cultural differences the first one was that there were certain moves that were made by the knight and uh, the king, which weren't the same as Western chess. And I think, I believe that it's an earlier form of chess. It was the way chess developed from. Uh, and, uh, f uh, for example, when you brought the pawn down to the uh, final rank, you didn't get a choice of pieces. You got the piece on which the pawn landed. Oh. That was one of the differences. The other more interesting difference was that instead of uh, having one opponent, there were four opponents. And they were all helping the original opponent. They were all the Afghans who were helping this guy. And I, I didn't understand it. I got a little bit hot under the collar. And I said, why are you helping the, my opponent? And they said, well... He's a friend of ours. Wouldn't you help a friend? 
So I learned what later would become the first dimension of Hofstede's uh, original four dimensions of cultural differences. Geert Hofstede, who was the leading researcher in the field of cross-cultural differences, and that's the difference between individualism and collectivism. And I, being a very individualistic American, thought everybody was, especially at that point in my life. And I learned immediately at that chess table that there was quite a different approach that I was about to walk into. And I liked that because that meant I was learning and uh, I was interested in that. So, uh, so, so you learned Dari? I mean, yes. you started learning cultural differences. What was... So the, the Dari instruction, I assume, was pretty straightforward. What was your cultural well, the, orientation? The, actually, the language was not straightforward because oh. they didn't have a language manual at that time. And during that time, the man who became my friend, uh, Dr. Entizar, uh, wrote the manual. And, and because we were friendly, he wrote me into it. So all the dialogues were between Arlem Rouse, which is very hard for... Americans to say because of the guttural sound and John Bing so you know one dialogue would say Roland Rouse asked John Bing can you eat with your hands because in Afghanistan they eat with their hands and uh, uh, you know John Bing meets Roland Rouse's friend and so on and so forth and about 10 years ago I got a, a postcard in the mail from some poor volunteer had to go through all those dialogues saying, can John Bing still eat with his hands? And it was an anonymous. And it wasn't signed. Anyway, uh, so... So you're immortalized. In a very odd way. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> in a very odd way. So, but that was the beginning of this lifelong friendship that ended two months ago at... Uh, I'm so sorry. At uh, his graveside, and I was the only non-Muslim at that uh, at that event, and his and with his family the day before, and uh, it it was probably one of the strongest friendships I've had. So, um, so it started back pre my service in the Peace Corps. Yeah. That's, that's now the cross-cultural question that you just asked me. It was a time of uh, transition between the area studies approach, where people gave you a bunch of lectures about the uh, soil types of various things in Afghanistan or the history of the place, and much more of a uh, how do you get along in another culture with these characteristics. And so it was in that transition period when we got a little bit of, of each uh, but it uh, started me along a life of <clears throat> work in the cross-cultural field. Um, when I uh, came back, uh, I'll just jump ahead to explain that. Uh, when I came back, I trained a lot of Peace Corps volunteers from a group called the Center for Research and Education in Estes Park, Colorado, uh, that was... Um, uh, just just after I came back, I, I came back and became a uh, member of the Washington staff, and I was a training officer. Uh, and then, uh, in their wisdom, the uh, P 
Peace Corps abolished the Office of Training <laughs> one day. So I went out and joined uh, a group that I had some admiration for. The leader of that uh, Center f uh, for Research and Education was Pauline Berkey. Pauline Berkey had done some of the initial work on developing the Peace Corps in Pakistan. And she was a remarkable woman uh, who mentored me uh, in the cross-cultural field. Uh, and uh, I uh, was a co-author of the first draft of the Peace Corps manual on cross-cultural training. Um, and uh, so I was interested in all these new techniques of helping people uh, work through uh, these cultural differences. And <clears throat> from that point on, I got my degree in international education from the University of Massachusetts Center for International Education and then started my own firm with my former Peace Corps director, Bob Steiner. We started a firm that was um, in the language training field for people coming to the United States uh, and uh, who were going to uh, go to college here. And so we set up a, a, a training program for them. And I, we worked together on that for four or five years until I started my own firm, uh, which is still around, uh, called ITAP International. It was originally International Training Associates of Princeton. But Okay, you're, you're jumping way ahead. Okay. So we're, we're going to try to do this somewhat, not, not totally linear, but a logic, little linear. Logic is different in different cultures. I, I, I totally understand that. But um, I think that it's all so... You, you were trained um, at, in Brattleboro. You, mm -hmm. how, how many people were in your, your group? About 45. And all in, in, in training and in education? Were they all? Education? Oh, no, all kinds of different uh, fields. We had a beekeeper, I think. We had uh, warehouse, uh, warehouse people who, who knew how to... Uh, but all going to Afghanistan all going to Afghanistan, various forms of educators. Probably the largest group was the English as a second, second language, language group. And that's what that's you were? That's what I was in. Okay. So um, anything else you want to say about the training at the time? And clearly the friendships you made. But did you think the training, now that you've become a professional over all the years in this field, do you think the training adequately prepared you for, for Peace Corps? It did a fairly good job. I, I think uh, I was fortunate to have very competent people running that program. And uh, uh, certainly the language training was excellent. The cross-cultural training was good. And then, you know, I picked up a lot of my own through my friendships with the Afghans as the chess uh, yeah. game uh, was an example of. Uh, so I think it, you know, I had no complaints at That's any good. time about that program. Excellent. That, yeah, yeah. So you then flew from somewhere, from Boston or somewhere, 
I think it was JFK, but okay, I'm not whatever. sure. Okay, yeah, whatever. Uh, to, uh, to where? To Well, we, we overnighted in uh, Tehran and then took uh, what later we called the, the uh, Afghan Airlines was... We called the Inshallah Airlines because we there were numerous Inshallah Airlines in the world. We had the same airline in Somalia. <laughs> so, so Ariana was took us into into Kabul, where I first met Bob Steiner, who would later become mm -hmm. my business partner. And Steiner was a legend among Peace Corps directors because he had grown up in Iran and spoke perfect. Uh, Farsi and impress the Afghans no end because not only did he speak their language but he spoke better quotes unquote better than they because it was more formal Irani yeah interesting all right so um, you got to Kabul and um, were you then immediately assigned to different places or was there further training no there was no further training which brings up the whole matter of Peace Corps training. It started off all in the U.S. Uh, or uh, I think Puerto Rico had a Peace Corps center. But basically it was in the U.S. And then by the time I got into providing Peace Corps training, we did it half and half, half in the U.S. And, and now it's totally overseas. And now it's totally overseas, which I think, I think the half and half model was the best preparation uh, because you can do certain things uh, from here that you can't do there and you can do a lot there you can't do here so in any event uh, yeah that was uh, all right so where you got to Kabul let me ask what happened when you got off the plane were you shocked no I was I was intensely interested in what I would find and uh, so did all kinds of sort of experimental forays. But one characteristic I had, again related to this cross-cultural area, is that I was really a type A personality. I was always trying to meet the Afghans I was supposed to meet to set up uh, classes or to do this or that or whatever, and they would never be there. And uh, I, was, uh, I was confused by this and and then a, a, an Afghan guy took me and said, well, we're, we're going to go to a tea house together. I said, why? i got things to do, important things to do. And he said, yeah, we're going to a tea house. So he sat me down, and four hours later, we were still sitting there, and I had calmed down. <laughs> I'd not only calmed down, but, I, but he taught me a lesson, which was in Afghanistan, there's, you must take time for contemplation, and you must take time for things other than meetings. Um, we had tea poured into teapots from samovars, and in the beginning you put five or six spoonfuls of sugar into a cup. The tea was oversweetened, but by the tenth cup it was bitter, and uh, my friend said, well, that's life. It's sweet now, but you get older, it gets a little more bitter. So there were a lot of those kinds of... That's a wise state, statement. The, there, there were a lot of those kinds of learnings. Uh, 
I within the first three weeks I found myself invited to a, a dinner where the lamb was served and I was served the lamb's eyes as being a guest and so on so I dutifully consumed it uh, there were the first assignment I had was at the University of Kabul uh, doing what? teaching English and uh, for three months the uh, after the university was supposed to open it was still locked up tight and the reason for that was that the the chapter C, the people who kept the classrooms and the offices clean, were also uh, docked their pay if any anything was missing from the rooms. So they discovered the best way to keep the room safe was to keep them locked, which they did. So nobody could get into the university. That was a story we tell. Looking back on it, I can't imagine it's true, but it might be. We were three months, and, and during that cold uh, cobble winter when it got down to many many degrees below zero uh, we uh, had nothing to do but to tend these uh, fires in our rooms which were made this was a Peace Corps innovation made out of sawdust they were tin can big tin can with sawdust in the middle and you put a pipe down the top of it and then you lit, you took the pipe out, packed it down, took the pipe out, and then you lit it from the middle out. And the, theoretically, it was supposed to burn from the middle out to the ends and provide heat. And sawdust was very, very cheap and otherwise unused. And so the Peace Corps saw those. But the problem was it wasn't designed properly and sawdust kept falling in the middle, in which case you'd have the smoke coming out into your room and this would happen two or three times. <laughs> I, <laughs> Not a great design. No, no, it wasn't a great invention. But we waited two or three months, and finally the place opened, and I taught there for a year. Then and was, this was at the college level? Who, 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 yes, who this was at the college level. Men? Women? Uh, there were a few women then. It, this was a very odd time in Afghanistan in terms of women's rights, because Zahir Shah, had the king, had decided that uh, they didn't wear the shader anymore, mm -hmm. and you saw actually saw Afghan women in miniskirts since during those times. Yeah. It was very this strange interim time when women had more freedom, I think, than either before or since. Uh, and so they joined their fellow students in classes and and so on. Uh, and this all. Uh, fell apart when the Taliban came in. So just going, so where, where did you live? Did you live at the university? No, no. We had a Peace Corps rented houses for all the volunteers all over the in city. Kabul. In yeah. Kabul. So there were lots of volunteers in lots Kabul? Of, lots of volunteers in Kabul. Uh, the Afghan, and you shared a house with or an apartment? With, with two others, yeah. And uh, we got along Sometimes well and sometimes not well. I remember that nobody changed. We got electricity occasionally and then the lights would come on, but when they blew out, nobody changed the light bulbs. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, a waiting time. And the second year, I went uh, to uh, Baglan in the north to teach at a... Uh, 
middle school there. And that was a much lovelier experience. Um, well, let's, before we do that, let's, so you taught English at the university level and they were, were these starting students or? Yeah, or they were. Know some English or what was they, that like? They, there was a variety of, uh, of uh, abilities in the class and, uh, I remember one tall Pashtun guy. Uh, the Pashtuns basically came from the southern and uh, western part of the of Afghanistan, and uh, he was from Kandahar. And he, I, I was sick one day, and uh, I was in bed, and he came to visit me with a bunch of oranges, and uh, he said to me. You know, I have to pass my exams because my family would be, they spent all this money to send me to Kabul. And if I don't pass, they will have a sense of shame. And they are, they do a lot of uh, mischief, my family. They, uh, they, they happen to take gold and drugs from one part of the border to the other. Uh, so anyway, I just hope you get well. And I do well. So he left, and I, the, the Afghan fellow who worked for me because did the house cleaning and stuff, he, he started to laugh, and he said, you better watch out for that guy. He's, he's, he's one, one tough guy. And so that set up a kind of a conundrum for me, you know, whether I was going to follow the precepts of... Uh, Good teaching and uh, and flunk the guy, or it was that bad. I mean, he was not going to do well. And or whether I would pass him, and and my life would be safe. So uh, the passing grade at that time at the University of Kabul was thirty five out of a hundred. The guy got thirty eight out of a hundred. I gave him his paper back, and he said to me. My family will do anything for you. You will come. We will give you a feast in Kandahar. We will, I said, you did it all by yourself. I did. Oh, we understand all that. <laughs> I'll take credit, won't that? <laughs> so, anyway, it was, there was so much about Afghanistan then that was 13th century. That was the way things had been done. I remember speaking with a farmer in uh, in uh, Baglan and asking him how his crops were doing, and he said they haven't been doing very well for for some time. I said, well, "What's the problem?" And he said, "Well, Genghis Khan destroyed all our underground water supplies, and things have been tough ever since." <laughs> so it was, you know, the the memories went back that far. And uh, and it was it was very much a 13th century kingdom. So, in in caste and class, or in other ways as well. Well, my friend Dr. Andazar uh, once broke them down according to various broke down the social structure according to various affinities, which included gender, 
wealth or class, religion, since there were two parts of uh, Islamic, there the Sunnis and the Shias, and then the other subsections of the of the Sunnis and Shias. Uh, according to what your, how much land you own, whether you're a government official or not, and three or four other uh, categories, all of which were affinities. And it all depended how much that affinity group could provide as to which one you decided to join. And well, so you had choices. You had, within limits. There were choices. Yes, you could uh, you could stick with the the Shias if you were uh, uh, Azara, as they were called, and the Shias were in the central part of the country. And if they they went outside that, they were discriminated against. Um, so you could just stay where you were instead of going uh, out there, or you could. Uh, Join the government and you know become a government affinity group. There were all kinds of. But uh, there was options. a way. Was there a way of escaping the poor? Um, limited. Or you know. Limited. Now, uh, once again, my friend Dr. Andesar was born a poor child in a village in uh, the central south part of Afghanistan, and. Um, he managed to do that, but through dint of extraordinary hard work. Uh, and but usually you're stuck where you were. There was a lot of stratification, yeah. yeah. So why did you decide to leave? Did you decide you wanted to leave Kabul, or was it I think it was a joint you? decision with, uh, with, with Bob Steiner. And why did you it, leave? I, it, it, we were stuck in this university that open three months late and um, was not really organized well at all. And I was interested in going to the provinces and seeing what, what it was like outside Kabul. And uh, he said, go for it. So well, just before we leave Kabul, who did you interact with? Did you interact with your teachers, with your fellow teachers, with students, with neighbors, peaceful well, volunteers, of all of the above? Pretty much all of the above. Uh, by the time I had been there for a year, I was speaking fairly good Farsi, so I could get around quite a bit. And uh, uh, so I, I, I met with fellow teachers. We would go off, we'd have parties with them. There were Peace Corps parties. Uh, uh, so there was there was a social life. There was also... A bit of the, how to put it, uh, Afghanistan has always been the crossroads of many civilizations, mm -hmm. cultures, and uh, also of adversaries. And the Russians and the Americans at that time were vying for influence. And so occasionally we'd go to Volunteers would go to parties where there were clearly uh, Afghans from the government who were asking interesting questions about why the American government was supporting certain person in the government and do you support him or, you know. So it was fairly clear that this was kind of a 
that we were being watched closely. And uh, that added a little, a little taste of... Did you meet any Russian or American spies while you were there? I'm, I'm sure I did. And I, the, the, the Russians were a, a little bit... They hadn't come in in, in great numbers. Uh, the Americans had built the university. They had built uh, roads uh, over the country. Um, the Russians built the road north, which went through the highest tunnel, the Solang Pass, in the world, I think, at the time that it was built, and which they later used to invade the country. Uh, and the Americans built an airport in Kandahar on the supposition that, uh, this is USAID, on the supposition that planes would have to stop there to refuel on the way to India, which was entirely false since they had, could carry enough fuel, didn't need to stop there. And uh, even if they had, there wouldn't have been any fuel because there was no fuel in the country. Anyway, the, this perfect airport, millions and millions and millions of dollars, just sat there pretty much unused. Came the planes, in useful later, though. Uh, yes, to the Russian pilots who were bombing Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, okay, so you left Kabul and you moved um, to the north. To the north. To, to a middle school. To Baglan. Baglan. Right. B-A-G-H-L-A-N. And uh, uh, by that time, I had married. And so my wife and I, who was another... She was a Peace Corps volunteer in Group One. Oh. Um, uh, we were there, and she. she you, you missed a whole romance. I mean, you just kind of jumped over all of that. Well, just. So we spend two minutes on meeting your future wife. Uh, suffice it to say that we had our wedding party at the ambassador's house because he had fallen for her because she had been an actress in uh, Oklahoma. The. Laurie and uh, she'd overcome the ambassador. So he gave us the party at the, <laughs> at the ambassador. It also happened that uh, we, in fact, weren't married because uh, the American charge at the time didn't know U.S. law. U.S. law states that you have to be married by a country official of the country in which you reside. He didn't know that, so there were about 20 couples married at that time who turned out but not to be married. the embassy is an American... Um, embassies are always considered the property of We weren't that country. married at the embassy. Oh, yeah, that's... We just had the party there. Okay. So, uh, so it turned out that when we were back to uh, train volunteers later on, we found out we weren't married. And at that time... Uh, my uh, my living lady friend uh, kept saying, when are we going to get married? I said, we're pretty busy now. Let's wait a little. Anyway, we finally went to a police station and with uh, my friend Dr. Andazar's help, who was translator, uh, uh, we got married by the police department of Kabul. And, uh, of course, I had to give a bride price. And so I offered $20 and the, the and she's policeman, still married to for that little money. The policeman looked at me and said, Twenty dollars, that's not very much. <laughs> I said, We know each other. <laughs> anyway, okay, so 
after that diversion, um, to talk a little bit about the middle school where you taught, or, or Baglan. What is Baglan? Baglan. What is Baglan like? Baglan was a small, was a, a large town, not a city, um, on the way to Kunduz, which is the northernmost city in Afghanistan. And uh, it was primarily agriculture at that time. And this was an agricultural school that I taught at. And uh, I had uh, not, <clears throat> I had watched the Afghan teachers uh, how they disciplined the the kids, and uh, and they they were harsh in how they disciplined the kids. And they, I said, you know, I don't know why you're doing that. And they said, well, the kids won't learn unless they're listening, and they won't listen if they're talking, and if so, you don't. But they used a switch, or yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, so one day I, I taught all my classes outdoors next to the Jewy. The Jewy is the canal which runs by the road in which, which is both a washing and sewer line for the town. And uh, there was one kid who was really acting up. And so I decided I would swat him in the Afghan manner. But there was something in me that didn't quite allow me to do that. So in, instead of hitting him, I knocked off his caracal cap. I hit his cap. Now, the caracal caps are the most important possession of young, uh, of young men and older men, actually, at that time. They're pretty expensive. And the cap uh, landed in this uh, water line, yes, and started floating downstream. And the little boy started crying, and uh, I ran after the hat, brushed it off, finally got it, and gave it back to him. I never touched a child. That was a good lesson for me. And uh, so, you know, I taught in my way, and the Afghans taught in their way. Uh, the other uh, incident that occurred there, which is of, I think, importance, was that when I arrived at the school, the principal gave a little talk uh, about, you know, about me, just saying, hello, welcome. And uh, then the mullah, the religious leader, gave a talk in which he said, this is a person who come here a long way for, to teach uh, you. And if I hear any problems with, between you and him, it's going to fall on you very badly. Now, that incident, and then later he asked me uh, for a copy of the Bible in, in Persian, which I was able to find for him and gave to him. So we had a distant relationship, and obviously he was very helpful. And I took that incident once at an American uh, cross, much later, uh, maybe 20 years ago, which would make it uh, around the turn of the 20th century, 21st century, and uh, and gave three uh, options about what the mullah would have said to me to a group that were cross-cultural types, one of which was that one, one of which is in which he said, this American is our enemy, you know, don't help him in any way, or this American is here, treat him any way you like. 
And they never chose the actual event because I think Americans have been conditioned to believe that uh, if you have, if you're with uh, uh, Muslims, they will treat you badly. When the opposite case was true. Same for us in a totally Muslim country as well. Yeah. So you taught um, middle school English, is that? That's the right. Uh, the uh, Columbia University uh, Education Division had been for some years producing textbooks in uh, Afghanistan, in Kabul, and they were distributed throughout the country. They're pretty pretty good textbooks. I've been taught to teach English in, uh, in certain ways in training, which were reasonably successful. And so we used those books and, uh, and the oral, oral method. Since there were 40 to 50 kids in every classroom, the oral oral method or the repeat after me in in group form was uh, the best method to use at that time certainly you couldn't use individual attention did you get to know any of the kids to to know any of them uh well since they were i don't know 10 8 9 10 11 they they weren't they were kids they were and kids. um was it, was it a boarding school? No. Or no. Oh, okay. No. That came from the surrounding area. Um, there were also nurses, uh, volunteer nurses in the town, and uh, but it was there, we didn't have a big presence. We were we were kind of isolated up there, but that was fine. We were part of the town. And but, did you become friends with any of the teachers there? Yeah, we became friends with some of the teachers. Uh, the guy who worked with for me in Kabul came up and with me to uh, to Baglan and uh, I was began to be a gardener there and I wanted to it was hard to get fresh uh, fresh uh, vegetables so I I, I took some uh, manure that was being sold I bought some manure and uh, put it on my garden and this fellow came back who was, uh, who was a joker? He was he was always making jokes, and he looked at what I'd done, and he said, "Did you pay for that?" I said, "Sure." How much did you pay? Well, five hundred Afghani or something. And he said, "Only foreigners would pay for shit in <laughs> Afghanistan. That's the only thing we have a lot of." <laughs> <laughs> So I was a married volunteer, and I've always questioned how different the experience is of a married volunteer and an unmarried volunteer. And since you are both, can you reflect a little bit about that? Well, very much different, uh, because uh, as an unmarried volunteer, uh, Afghans would ask where is your family? How come they let you come so far alone? It doesn't make any sense to us. Again, this individual group difference where you, where uh, individuals from a family weren't really thought to be ready for any kind of uh, independent living, maybe ever, really, because they lived in large compounds and so on. And they weren't expected to leave town and so on. So this idea of somebody coming this far alone was strange. But as a married unit, 
you had a bit more of uh, legitimacy in the cultural mm-hmm. context. And <clears throat> people could situate you in their own cultural uh, cultural approaches. So, um, did you travel around Afghanistan? I did. I did most of my traveling around Afghanistan after my Peace Corps service was done. Uh, my then wife went to Iraq to teach English uh, for six months, and but for six months I I became a staff member, um, a kind of a, a writer around the country. Uh, so I traveled all over the place. Um, through the, I remember once uh, carrying a heavy, heavy load from the U.S. Embassy up to a volunteer in the north, and it, we were in a half-ton pickup or two-ton pickup, and every the roads were just atrocious, just full of uh, the potholes that could swallow you, and uh, and then when it rained, of course. Couldn't go anywhere. Uh, And we broke a spring in the truck every 50 miles. They just break. And uh, so we'd go to the next town, and there would always be a blacksmith, because there were blacksmiths in every town, so he just... To fix the... We fixed it, and we'd go another 50 miles and find another blacksmith, and so on. And you were teaching... You were helping with teaching... No, at that point I was uh, I was carrying mail and money and uh, packages to volunteers. When we reached the uh, volunteer in the far north with these five heavy cases of material from the uh, embassy, uh, we brought them into his home, and somehow he'd managed to finagle a refrigerator. He had a refrigerator. And uh, I said, what, what in heck is in these boxes? He said, well, let's open them and find out. Well, it turns out he had a girlfriend in the embassy, and she was sending him cartons of beer. <laughs> I have to confess that I was rather happy at that <laughs> result, even though it was technically illegal. <laughs> so you carted all that beer. Yes. Up. <laughs> And then made the circle route around Afghanistan, went to uh, uh, Masari Sharif, and then uh, Maimonah, and then uh, Herat, and then Kandahar, and then down below Kandahar into the desert where I got stuck. Uh, we got, our, our, it, it was a trackless desert, so you sort of had to point your way toward the direction you went, and we went, got into a dry riverbed. And got stuck at noon in the desert, the Dasht Khali, which was called the Empty Desert. And there was a, a guy who was an evaluator from the University of Texas who was with me, and the driver of the tr- truck was an Afghan. And he and I just lifted the back end of that truck because we knew we'd be dead in about a, a day well, if came. we didn't. Yeah. Well. So, lifted it up. Well, I mean, the desert would have killed us. It was lifted up, got to where we're going. And uh, so it was, 
it was very interesting trip to see the whole country. The uh, groups that I trained later, that we trained later, out of the Center for Research and Education, were vaccinated, smallpox vac- vaccinators in Afghanistan. There's a film made out of that, um, that time. Now, they went everywhere because they vaccinated every human being in the country. They were remarkable people. Of all the Peace Corps volunteers I've ever known or heard of, those were the ones who did the most. They just went everywhere. By jeep, by uh, horse, by camel, by mule, by whatever, by walking. And they're all women. They're all women because uh, men couldn't vaccinate women, but women could vaccinate men and women. So, Women could vaccinate men. That's interesting. Yeah. So, anyway. Okay, so you, you did your wife work while you were still a volunteer? Was she still, yes, she was still. She, she was still a volunteer. She was also, and also teaching. An, also teaching. Yes. So you were assigned together. Right. Okay, so you've you've worked as staff for a while in in Afghanistan, and, and then did you go that, home or what happened yeah, afterwards? That that all uh, that set me on my lifetime work. If before I had a tendency toward it, that set it, and uh, I came back worked in the Peace Corps uh, as a, uh, a regional training officer uh, training. Uh, volunteers for all over the Middle East and spent a lot of time traveling in Northern Africa and uh, other places. Then when they closed the Peace Corps training office is when I joined the Center for Research and Education and began training volunteers through the Center for Research and Education trained thousands and thousands of volunteers. So, and some of the so basically, it was just outsourced. The training used to be done by Peace Corps, and then they all used of, contractors. Well, I think they used, with the exception of Puerto Rico, I believe they used contractors everywhere right. from the beginning. Um, but you said you were in the training office. So well, the training office, when it existed, was to supervise the, the con- contractual training. Okay, and. Uh, uh, so we we did the training for some of the vaccinators who went to Afghanistan, and we put them in the Four Corners area of New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado on um, reservations uh, on Native American land, and they went around doing health work with those groups, and that was good training for them. There was... It's harder to find rougher country than Afghanistan, but that comes close. So that I did uh, for a number of years, went back and got a degree in international education from University of Massachusetts, uh, worked uh, with Bob Steiner for a while uh, with this language program. Bob Steiner was the uh, Peace Corps director that I knew when I first knew when I went to Afghanistan as a volunteer. So we started a company, and this company did uh, training, language training. And then I decided it would make sense for me to resume my work in the cross-cultural field. And because I'd done all the early cultural work in the Peace Corps, 
And I knew that American businesses needed the same, a similar kind of training for them to be able to effectively work and market in other countries. And somehow that worked. That uh, company that I set up in 1986. This is ITAP? Yeah, in Princeton, New Jersey, exists now to this day after having worked with all kinds of the larger companies. I worked for J&J for 25 years as a consultant. And uh, and that, uh, in a way, that got me into uh, developing an application in which you could look at your own cultural uh, proclivities and compare them with cultural dimensions of people from all over the world and therefore get a a head start on knowing what the likely differences and similarities were that you had with other um, people from other cultures. And that was, uh, that was a application um, that we just sold to a group in Singapore. Um, And then uh, I also started, developed something called the Global Team Process Questionnaire, which came out of my experience working in the Peace Corps and other places. Global Team Process process Questionnaire. And that... What does that mean? That that is an application which people on a team uh, take, and they, that gives them a sense of how effective they, they are working together, where their gaps are, where they lack trust, where they lack a sense of what their objectives are, whether they lack uh, a sense of whether they're learning anything from this experience or not. There are, there are a number of dimensions that are measured through it. And, these, and then you compare that group with similar groups all across industries. So you know if you have an effective team or an ineffective team and what you need to do to make it more effective. And we're now reviving that instrument, which was dormant for a few years, and it's going to be used in Europe pretty soon. But all of that comes from that Peace Corps cross-cultural sense, maybe just from sitting down and playing chess with Afghans. Um, all of it so it's clearly had a tremendous impact on your yeah, life. Yeah, it's, it's focused uh, and uh, delineated my professional life. Now, the circle is going to be closed, is closed now, because about four years ago, uh, I started with uh, a group with four or five returned Peace Corps volunteers and three Afghan Americans, uh, a group to support um, weavers in uh, Bamiyan. Now, Bamiyan, you may remember, is where the uh, Buddhas uh, were and were destroyed by the Taliban. And the, these families live in, often live in caves around mm-hmm. the town. And so uh, uh, we, one of our number, is, a fellow by the name of Phil Smith, is a weaver who also was in Afghanistan, wove 
rugs in Herat, learned how to weave rugs there. I think I've met this guy. I'm sure you have, uh, or you should. He's, he's really a remarkable man. And he uh, put together, he determined that the looms that had been used for the last two millennia, which were earth looms, mm-hmm. pounded into the earth, and then the women sat on each side and passed the shuttle back oh. and forth, were rather limited because you couldn't use them in winter when it snowed. Mm. Uh, you couldn't use them uh, when it rained. Uh, would mess up what you were weaving, and so sent a counterbalance loom to the weavers in Afghanistan. We've raised now, I don't know, maybe thirty, forty thousand dollars for this group there. Um, they are, they have the loom. They're producing better quality material and much more of it than they ever have before. And they went along and used the original loom and copied it. And now they have two looms up and going, and they're very. Uh, now much more productive than they've been before. Several of the families were able to come down from the uh, from the caves and and build a home in the Bamiyan proper. In yeah, so uh, so we're still working on it. That that's that's wonderful. Do you so clearly it's had an impact on on your life. What impact do you think Peace Corps has had in I'll ask Afghanistan, but you've traveled around the world with your subsequent work. Do you think there's been an impact in, in developing countries? Or what or what that impact might have been? Well, this is a big question. This is a big question that I don't know if anyone has ever studied in the kind of level of depth that would be necessary to give it a an answer. I was tremendously disappointed in what happened in Afghanistan after 1969 or 79. Uh, I'd gone back in 74 as a USAID worker and begun to see, I mean, we did an evaluation uh, of non-formal education. Uh, and I was beginning to see cracks and fissures in, in the society. Uh, but I, what happened there is is awful. And it was set off by the Russian invasion. There's no question about that. The Russians made a terrible, stupid error. Well, no more terrible, stupid than we made in Vietnam. But nevertheless, it, it uh, set the country back 100 years anyway. And is still struggling. Uh, and uh, So in Afghanistan, you know, it's like dropping a stone in the ocean. The ripples only go so far and the ocean's an angry place. I think in other countries where peace has prevailed, I suspect the Peace Corps has had much more of an impact than we managed to have there. <clears throat> Though there are Afghans, of course, who still say, do you know X or Y who taught in my in my mm-hmm. village? Uh, so there are individual Afghans who certainly were influenced by the Peace Corps. But at a societal level in Afghanistan, the other forces were too large, too crude. Uh, 
for us to have a lasting when, effect. When did Peace Corps <coughs> leave Afghanistan? When the Russians came? When when did the... When Peace Corps leave? Yeah, just before the Russians invaded. The Russians had installed a government that was against any other Western mm-hmm. group, and they essentially kicked out the Peace Corps. Uh, I'm not sure of the exact year, but it was uh, somewhere around 78, 79, 1978 or 9. And uh, so that's been a big disappointment, but it's also been behind the work that we're doing now to try to continue that work in the face of all these problems. And we know that if we can support, we're doing this entirely different from USAID, from the Ford Foundation, anybody else. We just say, it's your project, you tell us what you need, you tell us what your objectives are, and we will do our best to support it. Uh, but we don't tell them anything about what to do. We don't tell them how to live their lives, how to make their projects, what to spend their money on. It's entirely up to them. We're simp- we have that freedom because we're not uh, a part of any larger institution. Mm-hmm. And we'll see if the outcome is the, outc- the outcome so far has been very encouraging. They've got production. They've got productivity. They're making money. They've built a second loom. Uh, they're, pro- they're going to establish a cooperative. I mean... How did you find out about them? That's a story. There's <clears throat> a woman by the name of Mary McMakin. She's 89 years old, and she lives in Kabul and Bamiyan. About six, seven years ago, I read about her and sent her a note saying, you know, amazing stuff you're doing. She she set up two nonprofits. She'd been there since 1980, I think. Little time back here, but mostly in Afghanistan. Last year, President Ghani gave her honorary Afghan citizenship. Mm-hmm. And uh, she informed us about this group that she thought had a lot of potential. And she is an advisor to them. Um, at 89, she doesn't get around as much as she used to, but she's in Bhagwan right now, I believe. Well, I mean, in Bamiyan right now. And uh, so she's... She's she, the one who identified... She them. identified that group, and now most of our communications are with the with Zara, who is the head of that group. Um, she has her own business there. She has her own marketing system and textiles business and so on. So, But she's the one who did that work. And one of our group went to Kabul a month and a half ago, met Zara, met Mary. Um, she, he's known Mary for 50 years because he was a student at the time she lived there and, mm-hmm. and met her daughter who was a fellow student and so on. So we do have these connections with them, even though we're far, far away. That's great. Well, let me ask about the third goal of Peace Corps, bringing the world back to the United States. I think it, it, uh, I was never, I never taught in this country in a public school, but I taught hundreds and maybe thousands of American executives of the importance of understanding 
the culture of the um, of the other place they're going to, and also international executives coming to the U.S. about this, the uh, strange uh, Americans Boys. and how we would welcome them with open arms for three days and then forget them, expect them to sink or swim. That's uh, another and, whole story. Yeah, and uh, and of course I helped train a lot of Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, so I think there was a dispersion of that third goal into American corporate life. I mean, the old days we were the ugly Americans, I guess more so than ever now, but it was in a different way. And, uh, and I think, I think a lot of folks learned from that, from using the tools that we developed, uh, like the application. I mean, most Americans didn't know they have the Karen cultures with them. They have no idea what it is. And But when you show them these five or six cultural dimensions, they begin to say, oh, well, you mean you could do it differently? Or, you know, we believe in a kind of equality, but in other places they may not, or may have a different sense of what's equal, so on and so forth. So I think... I hope I've spread a few seeds, um, but it's a big, angry ocean, and uh, well, everybody just does what they can. Right? Everybody does what they can. Yeah. Is there any other any other Peace Corps stories you'd like to tell that I didn't that my questions didn't trigger? No, I think you. I think we've. We bored, we've bored future generations to death. No, I don't think so. I thought it was very insightful. So thank you so much for the interview. Well, it's been very enjoyable. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. What did you guys think? Did you like this style, uh, an interview that was not conducted by me. Uh, yes, there are other people who uh, are very adept at, at interviewing returned Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, this is not a, a one-man band. I have not monopolized um, the uh, Peace Corps uh, interviewing circuit. But, but do you like this? Uh, do you want me to have more of these? Uh, Do you want me to go in and cut them down into shorter episodes, maybe 25, 30 minutes uh, with me talking about them and and entering the clip? Always welcome to ideas. Uh, Let me know. Reach out. Uh, One of the best ways is actually via Instagram, uh, sending me a direct message over at my Peace Corps story on Instagram. So let me know what you thought about this episode. And if I don't hear uh, any overwhelming objections to them, uh, you guys are probably going to hear a few more uh, down the road. Uh, So let me know if you don't like them, uh, because um, I really really, really can't do anything about that uh, if, if I don't actually hear from you guys. So reach out to me. Look forward to hearing from you. Hopefully you guys really enjoyed it. I thought some of his stories were absolutely amazing, especially the one about the beer um, and, and transporting uh, that one out there. That was funny in uh, getting married. Uh, but excellent stories, as all Peace Corps volunteers have. Remember, every volunteer has a story. 
what's yours?